Imagine all of your professional or career goals coming true, and you built a business that had a great brand and employed hundreds or thousands of people. But within a span of a few short years, it was completely gone. That's what's happening in American business these days, and we want to know why. Welcome to Brandology Podcast, where we discuss the rise and fall of great brands and the leadership methods which built them or took them down. Your brand is everything that matters. It's your culture, finances, marketing, and leadership. It's your brand. Protect it. Welcome everyone to our bonus episodes on the rise and fall of one of the largest brands in history, Toys R Us. This is the first of two episodes covering this iconic story and we welcome you to join us. We've received questions and feedback from listeners and we will answer some of that as well in coming segments. And welcome to this first bonus episode of the rise and fall of Toys R Us. Charles Lazarus accomplished a lot in his 94 years. Returning to the U.S. after World War II as a Jewish immigrant, Lazarus recognized the baby boom before it was included in the Urban Dictionary. He turned us all into Toys R Us killed and built a retail juggernaut. The brand icon, which started in his father's bike repair shop back in 1948, ultimately grew to over $12 billion as an empire. It garnered more than 25% of the world market share in the lucrative toy industry. It's unprecedented. To understand just how big of an accomplishment that was, even before we start into these segments, compare that to the global brand Apple, arguably one of the best brands in history. Apple's share of global new smartphone sales reached close to 19%. Toys R Us surpassed 25%. Lazarus's vision and his model were brilliantly simple. Build a supermarket for toys. Like a supermarket, inventory was deep, shelves were stocked, display settings were minimalist, and devoid of any fancy glass cases or expensive adornments. The model worked. The brand exploded to over 20 countries, selling more than 18,000 different toys at the same time in over 1,600 stores around the world. And then, shortly after the founder and visionary left the helm, the brand dissolved in bankruptcy in just a few short years. It's not what we think. It's not what you may think. The fall of Toys R Us did not come simply from an economic downturn or e-commerce giants like Amazon or big box stores like Walmart. In fact, the Toys R Us debt was lowered to junk bond status in about 2005 or so when Amazon was only 4% of its current size. So come listen find out as we explore the rise and the fall of Icon, Toys R Us.
Hey everyone, welcome to the episode. Today we're going to discuss the rise and fall of one of the world's most iconic brands. In this episode, we're going to explore one man's brand that he built all within his lifetime. He created it when he returned back from World War II, recognizing the baby boom was about to begin and capitalizing on it. He grew his business to more than $12 billion in valuation. And then, only in a few short years, wound up in bankruptcy court in 2017. It's not what you think. This isn't about the big box stores putting them out of business. This isn't about Amazon wrecking the business. So listen and find out what happened. This is the story of the rise and fall of Toys R Us. Charles Lazarus' idea was incredibly simple. Build a supermarket for toys. He created what eventually became known as Toys R Us. At the height of its power, Toys R Us was valued at over $12 billion. They sold more than 18,000 different toys in close to 1,600 locations in 20 countries around the world. They wound up controlling more than 25% of the world's toy market. That's some massive market share. They passed what's known as the tipping point of you know, 10 to 13% of market share that Jeffrey Millman, uh, the economist, calls crossing the chasm. That's where businesses' success, many of the businesses that we've all heard of, never even get past 10 to 13% of market share, even though they're wildly successful and everybody's heard of them. Toys R Us did that. They achieved majority adoption. They crossed the chasm. And during the store's heyday, it seemed like everyone was a Toys R Us kid. Then something happened. Something, frankly, that perplexes and bewilders us. A few summers ago, that iconic brand closed almost all of its stores. It was deeply in debt and filed for bankruptcy on September 18, 2017. As part of the liquidation of assets, it is scheduled to auction off all of its intellectual property, including the company's name, its website, and even its brand mascot, Jeffrey the Giraffe. How? Why? What the what happened? Shoppers believe today that their beloved store is gone for good, that it's never coming back. Um, there is somewhat of a resurgence and there are plans in the work to, re, to reinvigorate it and to bring it back in certain capacities. We're going to cover that. But this is one of the most iconic brands uh, that has ever affected the majority of all of us. Many of us have childhood memories of going there with family members um, or bringing our own kids or grandkids there. This is the story of the rise and fall of Toys R Us.
we're going to discuss the rise and fall of Toys R Us. We're going to break it up into different sections. First, we're going to talk about the model, what the vision was for the brand, what model was created. And then we're going to talk about how television and technology were leveraged, mass marketing was done, and how the brand was built. One where we all recognized being a Toys R Us kid was the result. And then we're going to talk about the fall. What happened? Why? And how can we learn from it? And then we'll wrap up just by talking about where they are today. So in terms of the first section, the model, right? And, and how this thing even came, came about. Um, you know, it was back in 1948 and Charles Lazarus had a hunch. Uh, he had returned from World War II um, and he knew that he wanted to go into business. You know, he knew long before the term baby boom was even kind of common that most of his friends that were at home or that had served with him in the military and then returned home, most of them were getting married. They wanted the American dream. They wanted to have families. And when mom and dad love each other very much, generally babies come. So he saw that and he said, everybody's doing this. Everybody's buying a little house. Everybody's getting married. All of his friends were. Uh, and so at the time, uh, he said, I want to really focus on this. Um, in fact, he's quoted as saying, everyone I talked to, everyone said they were going to go home, get married, have children, and live the American dream. That was his quote when he was talking about developing this model and this brand uh, for Entrepreneur Magazine back in 2008. He said, I decided that I would open a store in my father's bicycle repair shop. But instead of selling bikes, I would sell cribs, carriages, strollers, and high chairs, everything for the baby. My instincts told me that the timing was right. That was from Entrepreneur Magazine in 2008. And man, he was right. We all know it, right? Those instincts didn't just, you know, let him capitalize on the baby boom. They led him to build a $12 billion brand, all, you know, all within one lifetime. I mean, a retail juggernaut was created. It was just phenomenal. And, you know, it, it, it drove a lot of its competitors out of business. What's interesting to note is his model wound up being the very first template for the big box store. Back in the day, um, all of the suburban towns in America and in Europe uh, had private independent toy stores, right? They would have great displays, they would have really unique toys, but they didn't have a lot of them. And the prices could vary from town to town and toy to toy. There wasn't any consistency or standardization. Lazarus opened his first store. It was called Children's Bargain Town, actually. Um, it started that, it didn't start as Toys R Us. And it was in Washington, DC uh, in 1948. Uh, they specialized in baby goods, right? 
and really only began selling toys after he realized, holy cow, people aren't coming back for more strollers, high chairs, and other baby goods when they have their second child, right? This was post-depression America. People were used to being resourceful, right? And so they would use hand-me-downs, right? When they had a second and third child, guess what? You got Johnny's uh, stroller. You got you used the same high chair. They didn't just go buy new ones each time. It wasn't the disposable economy that we have now. So he started selling a few inexpensive toys, um, and then he just kept adding to his inventory. And then all of a sudden, he saw that blossom. He saw, holy cow, the toys are selling off the shelf. And I'm stuck kind of with an inventory of strollers, high chairs, and other stuff. So he really just got rid of selling baby goods and just focused on toys. That was between 1948 and 1957. He wasn't content with that one store. His idea was that it's got to be bigger than this children's bargain town, right? Or even any kid's store that he's ever seen. He wanted a massive store with every single toy in existence. Every single one. That's a vision, right? It's one thing to have it, you know, you're having a drink, you're talking to your friends, and you just have an idea of going big, right? This was a practical vision. Like, he saw it in his mind, and he talks about how he knew how to execute on it. So he did. In 1957, he completely got out of the baby furniture business. He renamed his brand Toys R Us, and he created the very first ever big box store. This new mega store, right, was a supermarket style. I mean, his vision is really pretty simple. Build a supermarket for toys. And most toy stores were, like we said, run in small, family run, um, usually carried a limited line of products, right? Lazarus's stores had, they were larger than any of his competitors, right? And they had thousands of different toys. They basically had everything anyone could imagine could be sold, and they had lots of them. So they weren't running out of inventory. So um, what one of the experts in that industry said his name is Richard Gottlieb. He's the founder of Global Toy Experts, which is an authority on the toy business. He said, what Lazarus really captured was the sense of American abundance after World War II and after all of those years of depression, which is really interesting, right? He said Lazarus was part of a huge wave of entrepreneurials um, that uh, a lot of them were soldiers that came back from the war themselves. Um, many of them were uh, of certain uh, ethnicity. A lot of them were of the Jewish religion. And there's, there's tons of examples of these industry superstars. There's Isaac Heller, who converted a military surplus into toys for boys back in the 1950s, made a fortune. There's Elliot Handler, founder of Mattel, We've all heard of Mattel and Milton Levine, creator of the widely powerful, the widely popular uh, Milton Zanfar, which was a huge hit back in the 50s and 60s. Um, I mean, his idea was pretty simple, 
right? And while other toy, toy shops had display cases, decorative interiors, they had rugs, they had fancy lighting, Toys R Us had none of it. It had concrete and tile floors. Why? Because it's better for the bottom line. And rows and rows of toys, all laid out, just put out in their boxes, one right after the other, just like what? Just like a grocery store. That bare bones appearance was endearing to everybody, right? And he had everything and his timing was right. The brand of this timing was perfect. It was the perfect storm. In the 1950s and 60s, some of the most iconic toys came out, right? So what you have to understand is, is Toys R Us, the store, the brand, right? Capitalized on the toy industry itself, which itself helped Toys R Us grow. Because at the time, the toy industry was creating things like Mr. Potato Head, Barbie, the Easy Bake Oven. All these things came out at the time that Toys R Us was entering and building in the same market. And then you had the Asian element of Japan rebuilding its economy after World War II. And it began to produce really inexpensive toys like tin robots and cars and stuffed animals. And he would buy them in bulk and buy them cheaply and then push those out throughout the suburbs of all of rural America and suburban America. As the Toys R Us brand grew and grew throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, mom and pop independent toy stores buckled. They weren't able to keep kids' attention with the sheer promise um, of discovery and vast selection that Toys R Us could offer them. And what's more is other big box stores, uh, like the large department stores um, at the time, they really only staffed toys for seasons. They'd have Christmas toys, they might have some summer items out there, but they weren't able to keep the massive inventory that Toys R Us had created. Toys R Us had really created a year-round demand for toys. It was the first time anybody has ever seen it. And then came the 50s, 60s, and 70s with all of the changes in leveraging the new technology, television. In the late 50s, we had Elvis. The 60s, we had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, American Bandstand. And America was glued to their TV. So as we're talking about television and the power of mass media and what that meant to huge brands like Toys R Us, we're going to take a moment. We're going to do a segment on, you know, telling me something good. Right, um, Mark Mosher, our uh, co-host here, um, he fields a lot of the questions from listeners, and uh, we get emails and texts, and um, several of them have, have, have asked, especially in light of the social unrest, what is good in the news? Because nobody's seeing um, a lot of good, and we've got a really excellent story to share um, from uh, Louisville, Kentucky and a dad who's inspired by his uh, daughter with Down syndrome. So we want to share that with you just because um, it's a television story and it's something very, very positive. So give it a listen. 
All right. Time again for our Tell Me Something Good segment. Tell me something good. So in this Tell Me Something Good segment, um, we're going to share a amazing story that was on WLKY-TV from Louisville, Kentucky. And it was inspired uh, by a nonverbal daughter who's got Down syndrome. And this Louisville man changes lives one smile at a time. Uh, anchor and reporter Stefan Dingle uh, has the segment um, from WLKY-TV. And it's about, you know, this Louisville man using hard times to kind of lift up others. His name is Michael Ray. And uh, Michael's a, an amazing guy. He started the Smile Project Louisville. It's a movement that promotes small acts which influence positivity and happiness in others. Through the project, he's able to help uplift others, help them out a little bit financially, uh, very much emotionally, and um, really touch those who are going through a hardship. He's quoted as saying, I'm really trying to change attitudes and behaviors in light of all the negative press by spreading love through smiling. It's the simplicity of a smile and it doesn't cost anything, he says. And the entire project came to fruition after being inspired by his 20-year-old daughter, Maddie, who he knows loves him very much, but she has Down syndrome and she's nonverbal. She's unable to even mouth those words to him. So let's give it a listen and hope that you're inspired. If you happen to bump into Michael Ray around town, you'll be hard-pressed to see a frown. Smile. Be so happy that when others see you, they become happy too. Through Smile Project Louisville, Ray helps find the bright spots in the lives of others. He documents those small moments by taking pictures of himself with others smiling. I'm really trying to change attitudes and behaviors by spreading love through smiling it's it's the simplicity of a smile it's doesn't cost anything that's right get a move give me kisses but what's priceless is exactly how this whole project started ray's 20 year old daughter maddie has down syndrome and is nonverbal. the one thing i've never heard my daughter tell me is i love you but the interactions that we have together um when I ask her if she loves me, it's all about smiling. And for Ray, a 45-second encounter at a Wendy's drive through window brightened his entire day. And it really, I mean, I was having a horrible morning, and I was like, man, that was so uplifting. So I pulled away, I parked, and, and I, I said, God, what are, you, what are you trying to tell me here? What do you want me to do? That answer resulted in this picture. I needed that smile more than, than somebody else, you know, because so, I'm going through those challenges, so... So, a smile from this stranger-turned-friend, along with his love of his children, helped Ray find his purpose. And since that first picture, Ray has snapshots with strangers from around the metro, including a cashier at Kroger named Lavanda, who months after this picture fell on hard times. In between working out, I happened to look on Facebook and then see, you know, uh, Lavanda struggling. So I sent her a message and I just said, how can we help? She's like, no, I'm not one to ask for help. She's more than res resilient. This is LaVonda. LaVonda graciously accepted a gift card to Walmart. When Ray learned about her need, he reached out to other followers of the Smile Project who simply wanted to pay it forward. I don't know, man. I, I feel like it's God's way of telling me to touch another life. And then the beautiful vehicle of social media able to try to change the lives of others. 
Strangers turned friends from opposite ends of the city, showing others that even when your days are dark, to just smile. In Louisville, Stefan Diggle, WLKY News. That is a great and uplifting story. Thanks, Mark, for finding it. And uh, we will have the link to that with the pictures and all of the video uh, down below in this episode. And so now we're going to transition from the rising star and the darling of Wall Street, um, Toys R Us, uh, into a brand that had racked up so much debt that it had been issued junk bond status by 2005, which at that time, Amazon was 4% of its current size. So once again, it's not Amazon that led to uh, the fall of this icon. And now as we move into section two, let's discuss how TV actually helped create the lovable brand that we all know as Toys R Us. See, the TV helped toy makers as well. Toy makers like Mattel, who would actually advertise on TV and save their famous catchphrase, available everywhere in the US at Toys R Us. They would actually tag Toys R Us in their ads you know who benefited from that? The toys. So as we can see, the TV created a number of opportunities for Toys R Us. And with that, Toys R Us continued to grow along with the family model and the American dream. If you recall, Toys R Us adopted their famous, well-known mascot, the giraffe named Jeffrey. Now, as some of you may not know, in these early TV spots, Jeffrey actually, in 1973, acquired a wife, Gigi, and it didn't stop there. Gigi and Jeffrey had two children, Junior and Baby G. And in the early 1980s, the store's TV spots became even more iconic. And I believe you all remember that catchy jingle that featured the self-identified Toys R Us kid who didn't want to grow up. And that was what launched the brand into the heart of America and everyone recognized the brand Toys R Us. Section three, the IPO. So this iconic brand that had grown so recognizable and so beloved by all genres and generations across the globe had worked. The company, which went public in 1978, helped turn a $500 million toy industry in 1950 into one worth $12 billion in 1990. At the height of its power, Toys R Us sold over 18,000 different toys in over 1,500 locations around the globe. And it controlled 25% of the world's toy market, which is unheard of by any other brand in any other industry. And in during the store's heyday, it seemed like everyone was a Toys R Us kid. Now, although parents naturally and eventually grew concerned about overloading their children with toys, the oversaturation was never really a challenge for Toys R Us. In fact, the store only began to fail 
once it cut back on the dizzying number of toys it carried. And in 1994, Charles Lazarus, who had grown this company from a small startup to a global leader in their industry, stepped down as the company's CEO. And after that, the vision was gone, the visionary had left, and the brand that he had created from his father's bike repair shop into this $12 billion company after 50 years has stepped down. What do you think happens next? What happens next is one of the biggest disappointments in the history of American brands. And what a disappointment that was. Was it due to Amazon, Walmart, the rise in e-commerce, changing toy tastes of children? Was it due to the economic downturn of 2008? Was it due to the loss of their visionary back in 94? Or was it something much more simple, much more economically devastating? Join us for part two of the rise and fall of Toys R Us coming up next. Hey everyone, that's the end of this episode and we do not have anything fancy, technologically advanced or another way to end this and we don't want to keep playing the intro over at the end. So please watch out for the next episode and thanks for listening.